Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Bubbles, kick us off, man. All right, so this week we have Andrew uh, Tessier um, on the podcast with us. So Andrew's working at Microsoft now um, as a technology strategist, and we just thought, hey, it'd be great to get have you on, Andrew, and just talk about, you know, what does a technology strategist do and how different is it from organizational agility advising that Jeff and I, well, I work on right now, Jeff's more of a product owner right now, but um, he's done that in the past. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I've been at Microsoft um, just over six months now, and I'm loving it. Um, not, you know, not just because it's a cool company with a lot of cool tech, um, but a lot of the things that we're working on. Um, I, you know, really think will change the way um, healthcare organizations run and uh, how they deliver care and um, how they apply technology to deliver care. And that's really why I decided to join. And that is genuinely what my position does is to work with uh, healthcare organizations to apply our tech to help them be better at what they do, uh, better at the care they deliver. Uh, better at the way they treat their members uh, as, as, an, as an insurance carrier and generally looking for ways to make um, both the, the delivery of care and the payment for care easier for patient members. And that's what I do. I actually only serve two customers. Hmm. Uh, yep. And uh, my role there is essentially uh, a dedicated CTO representing Microsoft. So um, you know, as you look across our portfolio of products and services, uh, as a customer, it can be a little daunting to navigate because you have people trying to sell you software, you have people trying to implement software, right? And you're really just saying, like, these are my goals, help me get there. And my job is to really work with them to say, let me help navigate the organization. Let's focus on what your North Star is, right? And then how do we get you there uh, incrementally? Because a lot of times what they want to do is pretty aspirational. Um, you can't, you know, you can't just leap there. You have to kind of walk there. And most of these organizations don't practice methods of agility, but the one I work for does. So it is really just a combination of those things, which is where are you trying to go? How can our tech help you? And then how do we apply methods of agility and cloud to get you there? So it's it's really fun. It's like a perfect fit for me. I really got lucky. The um, the literally, I think just Friday, maybe it was somebody had shot over uh, a link to. I'm gonna. I can't remember exactly what it is, but Microsoft just released something, and it's it's sort of like um, IntelliRx script or something like that. I just saw a headline for it, but it was basically so. Um, I, I'm in a in a similar space right now with what I'm doing. And cool. what we're finding is a lot of the EHR records, so electronic healthcare records, all the interoperability. So when you go to a doctor, it doesn't matter which one, they're all entering that information into a system that can be um, brought with you wherever you go, right? You own your healthcare data. Sure. Um, but a lot of it's just free form text, right? You go to your doctor and it's like, hey, how are you feeling? Oh, you've been taking, have you been taking this medication, right? And it's just, they're free form entering it. And yep. I think uh, Microsoft just released some sort of scripting, uh, I'm going to butcher this, not scripting language, but ability to parse and read that and make it detectable by systems in order to, to get it into um, storage type mm -hmm. mechanics. 
Is that coming out of your area or is that completely unrelated? I'm just kind of curious. You know, there's a jillion things going on at any given time, right? So I'm not surprised to hear that. A lot of things we're doing with AI, you know, um, along those same lines where providers can spend more time focused on the patient and the interaction with the patient during the encounter rather than doing what you just said, which is, you know, clickety clack right. and looking at the screen instead of looking at you as a patient. Um, so there's a plenty going on there. You know, I don't, I don't think people really uh, know, and they wouldn't need to unless they work directly with us, how invested the company is in healthcare. Um, there are full product groups that just work on healthcare use cases. Whereas you get other enterprise software companies, you know, they try to just apply what they have to the use case and modify it. Um, we have full groups, research groups, um, Next Tech, Next Health, that are working just on artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, how do we actually create intellectual property to solve those very problems? So there's constantly products coming out. Um, you'll see stuff being built on top of Teams. You'll see stuff being built within our um, biz, biz apps, power apps platform that's specific to healthcare, like HoloLens. Um, all of these product groups are really dedicated to the space um, because there is sort of a genuine care for it. You know, if you look at the leaders within our health group, they're all longtime healthcare veterans. They're not um, salespeople who are just coming in to sell software to healthcare. So it's a really cool place to work. In fact, I, I did an interview at another big tech company. Um, you know, I, I wanted to get into big tech because I had never worked in it. And I'm, I'm kind of winding down my career. And, you know, I wanted to spend the last part of it, like, how could I really apply tech to make a, a big difference? And in interviewing with the other big tech company in Microsoft, it came pretty clear to me, like, hey, we're not just ambitious about the space and sort of curious about where we can work there. Like, we're already invested. Um, we're hiring people with depth of background. And we're really looking for people to go in and challenge their customers to be better, right? Mm -hmm. and we're going to build tech that supports it. So those products, other products, Jeff, um, they're coming out all the time. I mean, that's one of the beauties of the cloud, right, boys? It's like you don't wait, you know, a year and a half for releases now. There's rings coming every day, right? And you can be early in the rings or you can wait a while and be later in the rings, but you're not like waiting a year and a half for a product anymore. I mean, that's loud. If they're invested in using software in our data centers, they get it pretty darn fast. So it's really fun to see. So you you also have mentioned a few different so healthcare space is, is pretty big, right? You you mentioned you've got the providers, the people who are actually providing the healthcare, you've got the insurers out there, you've got the members that are receiving it, um, uh, pr probably other ones as well. Is there any so in your role is more of the the strategic sense to that, you know, how how do you differentiate who you're going to be going after? Yeah. My boss decides that. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, when when I was interviewing with Microsoft, I was trying to find a place where I could make the um, biggest impact. And it wasn't um, it, it was just good timing, like in any other part of your career. It's like good timing, right opportunity. You make the most of it when you get there. Um, this was no different. In that the customers that they were looking to have, an, it's called an ATS, uh, you know, a technology strategist, account technology strategist, were a couple of the largest healthcare customers that they had. And that made it a good fit for me. But one is both payer and provider, and the other one is just provider. 
And that's really my background. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time in life sciences or med tech. Um, I've really spent, with the exception of a little bit of time in financial services and a little bit of time in the startup world, um, almost all in care delivery and care insurance. So it was just like I said, it was like really lucky, a perfect fit in that these are the customers that I end up serving. Um, you know, Microsoft, I could be doing something different six months than now, but I feel like really the place that I can add the most value is like, I know the tech, um, I know the business and, you know, knowing those two together, applying agility is a really good fit. So I'll spend, you know, I'll spend most of my time in the care delivery and care insurance businesses. How much do you get involved? I know obviously the tech for those two companies that you're kind of the CTO for, um, but like in the alignment around the technology and on what they define like their products are and how they deliver care. And do they still just think of it as IT or do they think of it like, hey, we are one team that delivers outcomes to the patient, uh, you know, or solutions. Like how much of that do you get involved with? On any given day, I would say within any hour of any given day, my role is different. Okay. Right. And then, you know, not only the audience or what their objectives are, but sort of where I can help the most as a representative of Microsoft. It literally will change by the hour. You know, I could spend one at my 8 a.m. discussion could be with a CTO about how to use our tented next gen products to allow their um, caregivers to do a better job in the exam room or their uh, non caregivers to do a better job working at home. And then in the next hour, I could be on a call that, you know, something detailed about how to enroll devices at organizations that are not integrated within their core tenants. So it could be something more like directional, and then it could be something very deep technically. And then a half hour after that, I could be basically um, taking a ticket. So I could be working with a customer that's like trying to work through how to use power apps to power an application that's resource management or case management within an OR. So at any time during the day, it's really situational, right? It's, it's really what does that particular customer need at that particular point? And then over time, what I've done is, you know, form some relationships that are a little more structured. Um, but given the size of the customers that I serve um, and given the number of different things that they're working on, it's very, very dynamic. Um, but without exception, it is how do they apply our tech with agility to get the outcomes that they're expecting, right? Sometimes that happens in one phone call. Sometimes that takes, you know, three, four months. Um, sometimes we don't get there, right? Sometimes they find something else to work on and they're no longer interested. So it is a very dynamic position where, you know, as a leader, of a corporate tech, like as a CTO or a CIO, you know, it's more methodical about bringing people along and kind of just like, you always heard me say, like relentlessly pursuing something, a lot of tenacity, working in big tech, serving a customer. It is truly about what's important at that given moment or for the next few weeks or for the next few months, right? It's not like five years from now, where are we going? So much different role. And do you validate like you're getting the outcomes that they're setting out to achieve? So like you're saying like, hey, we're going to use this new application um, and merge it with existing products that we have and we're trying to get to this outcome. Like, do you then help them figure out how to measure that and see like, did we solve the problem afterwards? Or is that kind of something that each it's you know, more, needs to figure out? 
Yeah, like if you're thinking about like using OKRs. Yeah, or that, or just like, yeah. do we set some type of outcome and then do we validate that by like feature usage or like, are we hitting some outcome by using this this technology, this product? Definitely, definitely. It's a little more binary, right? Um, when you're working in big tech, it's kind of either yes, it worked or no, it didn't. And when the answer is no, it didn't, there's a gap there that needs to be filled. Whereas, you know, in trying to achieve some goals, you see different measures of success, right? Like we got halfway there or three quarters of the way there based on what our objectives are. It seems like when you're working with the customer, it's like either it worked or it didn't and there's a gap. And then how do we address the gap and then iterate, right? So you have a certain expectation of how to apply the tech to the situation didn't quite work or, or it did work. And usually when it does work, then you're on to the next thing. When it doesn't work is where we start to kind of work across our organization, starting out with like specialists and then go into the product group. And then if the product group doesn't have it in their backlog, my job is to advocate for the customer and bring it to the executive, right? So the product executives, um, very much like a structure you guys are used to with the product owners, we have principals, and then we have all the way up to executive sponsors that define the backlog. So when the answer is no, then it's like, what's the gap? And then how do I help uh, represent the customer to get that gap filled? So anyway, what I was going to throw out there was, so we're we're just our, um, hopefully here in the very short future, we got a verbal okay with it, but we're going to be starting a pilot here with um, one of the children's hospitals uh, in uh, another state here. And so when we're, when we're defining this pilot, right, what are, what are the, the outcomes? And in the medical space, by the way, outcomes mean something a little bit different than right. what we would think about as outcomes, right? So we're, we're going to use the, the term outcome to say, like, we, we're going to run an experiment. What do we want the, the end, the goal to be, right? And how are we going to measure against it? So as an example, one of the, the key outcomes that we're going after, one of the goals that we're going after is um, reducing the amount of canceled um procedures, right? Okay. So if you use our application, uh, what, what we're hoping for is there's more real-time feedback from the, uh, the, the payer or the, the member that's going right to the provider. They can check in with that. Um, because there's more real-time, uh, there's less day of or 24 hours beforehand cancellations. There's less cancellations because of um, they didn't follow the directions, whatever the case may be, right? Um, I think it was like colonoscopy might be one of them where... Or, um, they have to have somebody because of the, the the anesthetics that go or something like that. They can't drive themselves home. So literally, right. like one of the things is, yep, you have to make sure that somebody is there to pick you up and drive you home. And if you don't have that beforehand, when the nurse calls you, like they cancel the appointment. So anyway, sure. that's that's what I I think maybe Jeff, you were thinking about like what is what is the outcome? Of how are we measuring against that? And what I heard a lot with what you were saying, Andrew, was. Yep, we're we're gonna we're gonna think about that, but then at the end, it's like, now we can hit, go back and actually did the experiment happen? If it didn't, or did we get the expected results from the experiment? If it didn't, here's the gaps that we want to go back and try and dive a little bit deeper into to see if there are other te technologies that we have internally that can overcome that gap. Is that right? A, a, yeah, it is. It's you know it's very iterative, right? So you kind of to your point, you come out with an expected objective in mind, right? You know that could be. Improved outcomes, like you just mentioned, with uh, making sure people show up for their appointments. Uh, colonoscopy is definitely one people like to avoid. <laughs> so I'm not surprised to hear that that's one they want to get a little bit better at, making sure people show up. But if that's the expected outcome, and even more specifically, like, is it like 10% improvement, 20% improvement, right? And then typically the caregivers and the care protocol that support that 
they have a pretty good idea of, the, of what they want, right? They know like it's abandoned here or it's abandoned here and the reason why it's abandoned. And then how do we use tech to improve that touch point, either in the way of like giving them some content to make sure they feel more comfortable with the procedure, right? How do we deliver that? When do we deliver that? And then they will, they'll try, they'll try those out. And then when they go to apply the, the tech, they might say, well, we still see these gaps. And sometimes those gaps can be filled by new procedures or applying the tech differently. But sometimes we have something complex, like, you know, I'm working with some customers to look at how to use HoloLens, right, um, to do uh, physician education. Sometimes the tech just doesn't exist, right? So the gap might be like, well, we don't have the software. And when the gap is we don't have the software, um, that's when we start to bring it into the backlogs of the groups that deliver, you know, software to, to millions and millions of people, right? So... Um, it's a little bit different situation than you'd see in a t- typical corporate environment. When you were talking earlier, you were talking kind of the, the two sides. There's there's the tech side and then there's the agility side of this. So yeah. S- similar situations where when we're going out, we're talking with a lot of doctors, they can be pretty wowed with, especially EHR, right? Like when we have them log into the app and all of a sudden they pull down and they can see all of their electronic health records just right there in the app. Like they're, they're kind of blown away by that. That's really cool. Um, right. But we, so we don't have to deal with the agility side of that, right? We're, we're software as a service, right? They're, they're, they're just going to be using our product. So what does that side of the house look like when you're, when you're working with these customers? Is it, yeah, everybody knows agility because we're kind of dealing with the technology side of organizations that are out there. Or when you're, when you're dealing with, you know, the provider space, when you're talking with doctors, like this, this agile crap, what is it? Why are you talking to me about it? Right? Like what, what is that conversation like? Yeah, I found that it's better not to be explicit about it. I found it's better just to be implicit, apply the principles, apply the techniques, and then just use them to be successful rather than trying to take a step back because I don't have to like convince a whole organization to apply methods of agility like where, where you and I met, which is like, hey, there's a lot of value to agility. Let's get a couple thousand people doing it. Where what I have in these situations, like, hey, I have this situation, I know how to apply methods of agility uh, to it, and they don't even really know that that's what's happening, but all of a sudden they're in the middle of it. And the great thing is, like, with the tech that I have my that I have at my discretion, it's it's super easy. Like, I'll be working with a physician group, and let's say let's let's use Hololens. Are you guys familiar with Hololens? Okay, so. You know, if oh, Jeff isn't actually like, I'm not, give us a, give me a brief description of it. Bing it. Uh, don't Google it. Bing it. HoloLens uh, <laughs> is VRAR and it's the same sort of um, form factor as Oculus. It's our own version of it. Um, but what the nice thing is, is we have a whole, you know, stacks of software behind it, whereas Oculus is probably more specific to new new platforms of development. Ours is more specific to the enterprise, right? Okay. Uh, and so we see, let's say we have a physician's group who wants to use the Oculus to demon, you know, to create a video to allow a physician to put on the HoloLens um, to show them how to don and doff PPE, you know, during COVID, right? So how do you put on this really expensive stuff properly so you can go into a COVID ward and protect yourself and the other patients in there. So rather than sort of 
talk about how do we apply methods of agility here, what we do is we immediately set up a, a site to collaborate on it, right? We immediately set up a board, a Kanban board, right? And we start to use that board to show like, okay, here are the first few things we need to do in a very short period of time. And we start to apply just real basic methods of agility to the situation. Hmm. And then if it becomes more complex, then, hey, why don't we use something like Azure DevOps? Because then we start to integrate into their operations. And I have these tools at my discretion, but we never really stop and say, have you ever heard of Agile? Or have you ever heard of Scrum? Or, you know, it's just the way we work. And they, they don't assimilate. So I think there's a big difference there. Like when you're there and you're working with a customer who's trying to get something done, they're very cooperative because it's mutually beneficial and they tend to sort of work the way that we work. Where when you go into a corporation, you have to sort of convince them to do that. And it becomes more of a process of assimilation, right? Like how do we assimilate into the environment and then also apply these methods? But when we're just working on this one situation, it just becomes very cooperative. And it's really fun to see because all of a sudden they start working that way. So we have a product that I really love um, called Planner. And Planner is, um, is board-based, right? And it, uh, you know, it allows you to do things fairly quickly, um, but there isn't like product behind it. It's just a way to stay very organized. And I've, I've used this now in a few situations and I'll come back like a month later to check on things, to see how things are going after we're kind of done, so to speak. And now that planner has been widely adopted and all of a sudden all the questions are about planner. So I found Jeff that like, it just becomes cooperative. You don't have to explain it to them. And just like you, like the three of us know, these methods are a better way to work. So once people start to work that way, they just kind of carry it on. It takes out a life of their own. You don't have to explain it. So is it like a lot of times it might be the first time someone's exposed to, hey, let's plan everything. And you're like, no, let's just like get one thing out and yeah. let's just see if we what it looks like after we maybe just maybe they want to do every type of like protective equipment and you're like, no, let's just do the main one real quick. Let's, let's see what that looks like. Right. You know, three minute, you know, hollow lens, you know, simulation that somebody can go through and you're like, okay, do you want to use that? Do you want to keep more going? And they get a lot of value just on shipping stuff quick, quickly and understanding like you don't have to have everything right away. Right. And then knowing you don't, most of them are licensed on our tech. So like I can set up a team site, we start cooperating there. I'll pop up a planner. I'll say, how do we get you on to the right parts of our Azure cloud or our modern work cloud or our biz apps cloud? And we just start working right away. And then typically they'll take what we start and they'll spend more time working on it. And then, um, so I have, I'm on my own. So I don't have anybody that reports to me, but what I can do then at my discretion is I'll, I'll contact a few cloud architects. And to your point, Jeff, they'll say like, this is sort of the possible Mm -hmm. get started and the architects will help them through it and then they iterate right and then i'll check in in a week and i'll say did we get through these tasks or didn't we and can we move these on the board right and then they start to work that way so then i'll join them again and i'll find that the board is populated with a lot more activities now right and they're kind of using the capabilities on their own to drive it forward because at the end of the day they own the software right they would own the HoloLens. They would own configuring the HoloLens, their own tech team. Uh, but now they're applying these methods of agility, and they don't even really know they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it really makes me feel great because if you, if, if you look at what I'm trying to do, like the last part of my career, is really make healthcare better by applying agility, which they don't typically, right, and using cloud to go faster. 
which they don't typically. And if you kind of try to sell that broadly across the organization rather than take certain situations and just apply it, it's a lot longer path mm-hmm. than just like, this is the situation, let's apply agility, let's apply a cloud, and then look at how quickly you get to an outcome. And I can do that situationally, whereas a, as a CTO within an organization that's has not practiced methods of agility, that has not applied cloud you spend an awful lot of time trying to convince leaders that it's the right way to go, mm-hmm. which has to be done. It's, you know, and I'm glad I had the, I've had the chance to do that a few times in my career with varying levels of success, but it is a lot more gratifying just to like take a situation like, Oh, let's use HoloLens to make sure your physicians are putting on PPE properly. Right. So you have the tech, we have the objective. That's the objective, right? Let's use planner, Right. And then as we get a little more sophisticated, let's use DevOps. Let's start to apply these principles. And then when you leave, they just it just takes on a life of its own. And you start to see that happen in pockets of the organizations you work with. So it's really it's really fun. It's awesome. Yeah. You know, sounds like you're getting much closer to the customer in, in your yeah. new role than, you know, in the past, which is probably more gratifying for you because you're actually seeing like business problems or patient problems or physician problems getting solved, you know, more rapidly where you might not do that if you're like you were talking about before in a leadership position inside of a large organization and you're a little further removed from the actual people using your products. So yeah, um, it is nice. And I, I do. I spend all my day every day with two different customers. Now these are big customers. So different areas within that customer. Um, but, and, and our product teams, right? So it's really like me, customer, product teams, delivery teams, specialists. And it is really gratifying because I don't have to, um, I don't have to spend a lot of time trying to convince people to use it. It's just like, what's the best way to use it and what's the way to get it done as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a much different experience. Oh, I'm going to steal Jeff's question from earlier when we were about to rep- uh, record because you kind of started diving into it a little bit or hinted at it. Um, what were some of your lessons learned from previous organizations as you kind of started them on their agile journeys or came in midway through and had to like pick up things and, and take them to the next step? Um, yeah. yeah. You know what? I've, so it's it gets easier every time. I think that's because I get a little bit better at doing it but I also feel like the environment's more receptive to it, right? Um, And, you know, like I said, I've had varying levels of success um, at different organizations, and it's typically not with the people doing the work. You know, since I started practicing methods of agility to develop software in like 2002, right? Um, What I've found almost every single time without exception is the people that are actually applying the methods to do the work are much more satisfied and much more productive if they have faith and they practice them with the goal of getting better. Right. That's been consistent pretty much the whole time I've been trying to do this with organizations. What I've noticed is conceptually the decision makers in the organization have gotten more comfortable with the principles that come with being agile and the principles of service leadership as they become more broadly adopted and advisory firms become more want to say it's okay. Right. So I've definitely seen it get pretty much the same 
with the people doing the work and quite a bit easier to convince leaders to do it, right? Whereas early in my career, we just didn't even really talk about it too much outside of the IT teams, right? You never tried to like do it organizationally. We were just like doing it within the software dev teams because we were putting out software quicker than the teams were by practicing this. And then, you know, as companies started to become more comfortable with it and you started to see constructs like safe and less and so on and so forth happening organizationally, um, the leaders became more receptive to it. And you'd see these methods start to proliferate outside of the IT teams, right? The software dev teams. In mm-hmm. So it's definitely gotten easier because of that, but you're still at a point where a lot of the executives and, you know, myself included, we were taught to manage differently, right? And there's still always this barrier there because, you know, I, when I was in school, we were taught very much industrial, how to manage things through an industry, applying industry and production concepts to everything. Mm-hmm. Everything you're producing something, everything should follow these constructs. And, you know, a lot of these executives have found success in applying sort of a control environment, uh, production environment, using production concepts. Um, They've made their career out of that. So now they're at a point now where they're at the pinnacle of their career and you kind of come in and you say, guess what? Um, That's all wrong. (laughs) Or not so much wrong, but it could be better, right? You could let people have more autonomy. Um, You could let people just the direction that you give them, you just say, this is what success looks like. Come talk to me when you have a barrier or you need an enabler. That's difficult um, proposition for them. Right. And sometimes fundamentally they don't believe in the concepts of agility or service leadership. So what I've noticed along the way is although it's become easier, it's not easy. And until the leaders who were have worked in that model all the time are the ones making the decisions. It won't be easy, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. And that's no fault of anybody, right? Like these executives are remarkable, you know, across the board, um, all these organizations I've worked with, they're all well-intended, but applying these new ways of working is a bit of a stretch for them. And it's not easy always to, participate, right? Until you truly believe in it. So it's gotten easier. The teams who practice it still love it, right? And along the way, I've found that working with the people who run the organization is getting easier and easier. There's still a bit of barrier. I do think as the people who started practicing these methods early in their career are the ones making the decision, it's just going to happen more and more often. Yeah kind of a natural transition over time as people have been there they've seen the result of a team approach uh getting everybody engaged and involved in problem solving the problem they realize hey maybe when i get into a leadership position i should use that same approach and use a team of people to help solve problems instead of thinking i'm the smartest person in the room right like i should make all the decisions and control everything because you can't you know so yeah i can see that happening i also wonder like you know well I don't know how, how, well, can it happen faster? Can it happen sooner? Or will there be an, um, you know, I'm thinking of some of the big tech companies that are out there, you know, that you're talking about, like if they're already doing a lot of this stuff, 
right? Yeah. And they're building stuff so much faster than what some companies are. And for a long period of time, there's been a lot of, I mean, I worked in the financial organizations. I've worked with a lot of health organizations, insurance organizations. They just, to be honest, they have a lot of money and uh, they can waste it for a while, a period of time and not waste it, but like they actually have money. They could, they can not spend it as effectively as possible and still be irrelevant. But like these other companies are coming in and eventually, I mean, there might be some big switches in the marketplace if they don't catch up a little quicker. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't really have a dark view on it, Jeff. I, I think it's like anything else. If there's a good reason to apply these methods, which we all know there are, mm-hmm. um, we know that the way the world is now requires rapid innovation, ability to change, ability to seize markets when they appear because they kind of appear and evaporate fairly quickly. Right. Um, if you can't build what's needed and deliver it at that given moment, you're going to lose out on a big opportunity, right? right? And I know the leaders see that and they're starting to see the success behind that. So I think it's just a matter of evolving into it. And it has been the whole time and it hasn't been that long. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, like these industrial concepts that have been taught for, geez, you know, since the 20s and 30s, all the way up literally until like the mid to late 90s, this was curriculum. Mm-hmm. for anyone who's going to be a leader. And now we're 2020. So now we're what, 25 years into applying these. It's it's already gotten better and it will continue to evolve to it because people are starting to understand that they need to do things quickly. They need to hit these markets quickly and they need to apply all that money that they have to getting better at it. And I see it happening over and over again. So I I take a, a pretty Pollyanna view. Like I'm really amazed to see where things are going from where they were in 2003 to where they are now mm-hmm. to where they're going now. Working at Microsoft's a much different experience than what you guys are having because that's just the way we work. I mean, like at any given day, you're pivoting a few times within your quarter to achieve the objectives of your customer or the organization you're pivoting a few times. Think about the innovation that comes out in the cloud, Right. I mean, there's no possible way I could keep up with our products, right? And what you're seeing is these companies lead, so Microsoft and the other big tech companies, the way that they develop products, people are starting to mimic that and mimic the success there. So I really see it happening. I see the workforce that is out there now quickly adopting to these, quickly adopting to the tech, you know, quickly able to innovate and change directions. I I think... The generation from now um, to 2030, um, things are going to change so dramatically that we'll look back at it. And if we have the same discussion, then we'll be like, you know, now it's just the way everything is. Um, and you don't even have to really talk about it. that way. But I'm, I'm very optimistic about where things are going. So if you were, oh, go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> no worries, dude. Uh, you you were just kind of commenting about uh, before you know that entrance into into Microsoft where it's already just like part of the DNA of that organization. Like, yeah. what was that transition like from having to you know you're you're trying to be part of the change agent? You know, you're trying to help bring the organization along, and all of a sudden you're just jumping in like, oh, I don't have to you know try to drag people sometimes kicking and screaming into this agile stuff. It's just part of how we do it. So I was just kind of curious, like, what was that transition like, and and can you elaborate a little bit more on just like 
how is Microsoft agile? How are their teams agile? Like, can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. So first question, like, what was it like, you know, first day kind of figuring out how people work? Uh, super weird because it's all been over video, right? Um, which I was kind of used to because I spent a lot of my career, Jeff and I were talking about that before we started, like traveling, working remotely um, wasn't unusual for me, but to do it during a pandemic, it, you know, with a big tech company and having never actually met anybody, the first thing was, is a little bit weird. Because at least when you get a chance to go through the process and meet a few people, you can kind of connect with them, um, you know, just based on their behaviors and and how they hold themselves and what they're interested in. But absent of all that, it was a bit weird, right? But then starting to see how people work was both humbling and gratifying. And it was it was gratifying to see that you know people are super productive by applying some of these methods working rapidly, working through innovation, changing uh, on a daily basis was gratifying to see like, this is the way they work. This is the way I like to work. It was gratifying and there's a lot of comfort there. Uh, Very humbling to be part of a group of people who are exceptional and very deep in the tech that they work with. And as a CTO and as a CIO, you guys know, we cruise pretty darn high, right? We cruise pretty darn high across the tech and we know how to apply the constructs, but to actually do the work, you know, pretty much never going to do it on a day-to-day basis. Well, in the role that I'm in, I don't have that luxury. So we could be talking about something specific about, you know, how our biz apps cloud can be used for case management, right? And all of a sudden we're into the tech and I don't know it anymore, right? Because, you know, for... 10 years of my career, I was cruising at that sea level. Um, So it was very, very humbling to have to like go, okay, I have to spend time to make sure I understand this tech uh, intimately, at least at like a 200 level. So what I found for like the first three months was I would participate in these discussions. And then the next morning I would spend the whole morning and because I have access to everything, right? Learning the tech. And it was really nice for me because I've always been, you know, I started my career as a developer. Um, I've always been close to the tech, but as an executive, I just kept getting further and further away from the tech. And although humbling, it's also been a really good chance for me to ground myself again in how the tech works rather than just actually talking about the tech. And um, also having access to these really talented cloud solution architects who are, you know, graduate level, uh, and then even beyond that, to work with the people who develop the tech that the architects use. So that's been very, very humbling for me. And uh, as gratifying and comfortable it is to work with like-minded professionals who believe in methods of agility, uh, it's also been pretty humbling to work with people with the depth of intelligence and knowledge on specific things. Like I can talk conversationally about AI. But if I actually have to like start to code AI models and machine learning models, you know, I, I can't. But now the more I do it, the closer I get to actually being able to apply. So that part's been fantastic for me to get closer to the tech again. And I have the time because um, I don't have uh, any managerial responsibilities. You know, it truly is an ad- uh, advisor role. Um, so I can dig into that as deep as I want to, as long as it makes sense for what we're trying to work on. So that's been awesome, really awesome. 
How much has your approach changed with that advisory attorney role? I mean, you really have no authority, I'm assuming, in these organizations. To like, You have to lead through influence, through guidance, through coaching, right? Through asking powerful questions, things along those lines. Yeah. How is, how, I mean, how has that changed and how, how, do you, how do you feel about that? At, at first, it was, it was hard, Jeff. I mean, you're, you know, being uh, an executive comes with a lot of privilege, and sometimes um, I would look back at that privilege and be a little bit embarrassed by it, you know, um, especially given what we've seen this summer mm-hmm. and sort of the acuity that's come to privilege and the implications of privilege. Um, but, you know, having resources at your discretion where you have a bunch of smart people and you can just say, I need this and you just get it. And then being completely absent of that, um, again, is like, is humbling, right? Mm-hmm. Because now I'll say I have to produce this on my own and I have to, you know, in addition to managing my day, and I used to have a lot of people that would help me with that. So absent of all that, you're kind of like, okay, how how am I going to be successful? Because I have to not only manage all of this, but then to your point, like, how do I convince people to actually use the tech? And, you know, that's always situational, right? So when you come in as an advisor, you may be in a defensive posture where like, we're trying to use this and it doesn't work and it sucks. So make it better. Or I don't know anything about the tech, teach me. And then it's a much longer process. So they're using it and it stinks and they want it better. They know nothing about it or sometimes in between there. And a lot of times it is just about listening. In fact, not a lot of times, all the time it is just about listening. Either if it's listening to like, this is broken and I hate it. So let's talk about, you know, use our five whys that we've learned over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then let's get to what the problem is. Or let's talk about why you're really interested in the tech. You know, like they may say, I'm really interested in teams for virtual visits. But rather than sort of like just demonstrating the tech, it's like, what do you expect as the outcome of the tech? Let's talk about like what you think is going to happen if you use it. And that's more the role that I find the, the better way to come in than coming in and saying it's broken, it doesn't work. But each time it's just, it's a little bit different and it really depends on the situation. So um, as an advisor, you know, you know, I think that, that that title comes with gravitas that I don't really have. You know, my job is to help our customers be successful with our tech. And Sometimes, like I said, sometimes that is providing advice. Sometimes that's just getting them to the right place in the organization. So really, you know, the term strategist is really how do you navigate our organization to be successful? And sometimes it is providing advice and sometimes it's just connecting. Sometimes providing advice when things aren't working the way that they're expected. Sometimes correcting assumptions about what they can do. Um, It really is helping them navigate the situation. So, Andrew, I just wanted to um, pull out a few points that I heard you just talk about here from new letter level leadership. So you, we were talking about how, you know, traditional manufacturing leadership of working on efficiency and, you know, that type of uh, way that many people have been trained. And now we're saying, hey, in this agile world, we, we kind of want people to lead different. It's complex. It's We can't just dictate and control everything. We need to take more of a feedback mindset and we need to lead and empower people and and uh, you just talked about how you made this transition from being an executive leader to being more an advisor role. And I heard some things that I think can apply in both those situations. 
Yeah. The things I heard were listening is really important, being level three listening, listening to what people are saying without trying to like maybe come back with what are you going to say, but just really listening to them, being humble. I think that was a big thing you hit on a lot there. Like yeah. humility, like a lot of people will give you a lot of grace if you're very humble with them, right? And um, coaching and advising instead of like telling and commanding and then aligning people on goals and making sure we're going in the same direction, just getting that alignment and really just being an advocate for people and for their needs, right? Across the company, you're talking about how you go back to different groups and you try to get these different things added to the products when there's gaps and there's things that are missing. So I mean, I don't know if there's other ones you want to add to that list, but I just thought that was a good place to start of like, these are some really good things for leaders to think about um, if they're trying to make that transition. Yeah. You know, for me, Jeff, leading a person, a few people, hundreds of people, thousands of people in my career, um, large scopes of responsibility, small scopes of responsibility, to even today, tomorrow morning when I wake up, my day will be different hour by hour. My role will be different hour by hour. Some things never, ever change for me in order to be successful. One is you have to listen, right? And you have to listen with empathy and you have to listen genuinely. And I think when you do that and you do that consistently, you form the right relationships where you can be productive, right? So, so that never, that never, ever changes. Um, and then you have to clearly define what success looks like. So if as an individual contributor in one situation, what does success really look like, right? That never changes. And then given the role that you're in, how do you either eliminate barriers or enable success? So listening, defining success, eliminating barriers and creating enablers as my role as an individual contributor working at Microsoft, that's what I do every single day, right? Now, in my roles previously as a CTO or as a CIO, that's exactly what I wanted to do. But the scale is different, right? And the way that you accomplish that is different than the way I do it now. So the ground rules are different, but the fundamentals are the same. Um, and I think, you know, in order to be successful, if that is philosophically the way that you work every day, you really truly have to believe that you are at the service of others. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't change either. And I think like, if you look at the leaders where these things don't connect, what I really wonder is, do they truly believe that they're at the service of others or are they serving themselves? Mm -hmm. Or in their constituents. And, and that's where you kind of run into gaps that are just, you cannot knock those gaps down. Patrick Lynchiani's newest book is really just all about that. It's like really from a leader's standpoint, like I don't think leaders get there, but uh, I don't think they choose to go to lead because they, they want it to be about themselves or status or something else. I think they go there because it's like, Hey, this is the next step of my career. This is how you get ahead. This is, you know, this is what is kind of expected. And maybe sometimes it turns into status or this is, I'm doing it for not for other people, but just because that's what's, you know, that's the norm. Yeah. And uh, I think what you just said there is really important, like really doing it as a service for people. And, and maybe even sometimes the people that don't want that role are sometimes the best people I found, you yeah. know, when you're thinking about like a promotion or someone to lead a group and it's like, I don't really want to be the leader because I don't, 
I don't want to have to deal with all the other stuff that goes along with if there's bureaucracy in an organization or something like that, but maybe that's just the right person because, you know, they really just want to serve other people or they want to, you know, they're invested in the outcome of, of the organization or the group. So. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a true service leadership and that concepts as old as some of these industrial leadership concepts, yeah. right? It's back to early sixties where the school of thought was completely ignored that until there were a few places and it happened to be tech companies where when it was applied, it, it generated a tremendous amount of success. And then you start to see other people aligned to those. Right. But I do think that there are just genuinely true service leaders that that is the way that they go about everything. And there aren't as many outside of tech that you see that behave that way. And, um, you know, when you're out there day to day, I think you see that too, right? And I, when I say that to people, I, I think that they think I'm being critical of executives, like they don't get it. Um, you know, I'm better than them because this is the way I behave. That's not all, it has nothing to do with that at all. Um, all these folks have found success in different ways. It's just that the approach to service leadership is something that resonates with me. And in some organizations, you know, in the military and the other areas where directives and command and control structures are important, a service leader might not find as much success, right? And Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? Jeff was in the military. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Okay. Kind of, I, I would push back on it a little bit. So um, there's definitely time and place for, for command and control, right? Co context matters, as Jeff likes to say. Um, you know, when, when the bullets are flying at you is not the time where you get together and do a sprint planning event, right? It, it's reactive, right? And that's why you train so diligently so you know what to do in those types of situations. But I, I, I love talking about military stuff and just how agile it really is. And to, so I always think about uh, the, in the military, well, I'll, let's talk army because that's, that's where I have the most knowledge. When uh, a leader, a commander, whether it's a battalion commander, a company commander, doesn't matter. Um, when they're putting together an order, it, it's, a, it's a very structured format. It's called a five paragraph op order. Um, and it's situation, mission, execution, sustainment, command, and control. Those are the five paragraphs of the five uh, five paragraph op board. And the the situation is letting you know what's going on. You know, adjacent, um, uh, friendly, friendly units, uh, uh, enemy units. Just the lay of the land. What what, what is the the terrain that you're going to be operating in, or the the environment you're going to be operating in? But then there's the mission, the who, what, when, where, why. Right. It's what is the end state. As the commander, this is what I want to have happen by this certain time, right? Um, at at that point, that's that's kind of it for the commander. Is they set they set the intent and they expect their subordinate units to be able to do the things in order to accomplish that goal. So even even at that level, right there, you know, an end state is defined, and you have the autonomy to figure out how to do that. Now there might be some more. Uh, nuance, uh, situation, mission, execution in, in that line of it. But typically in the execution area, that's actually where the subordinate units are filling in what they are going to do, right? And so that's that's at a battalion level, that's at a company level. And so even when you're getting into the platoon level where you've got your platoon lead or uh, a platoon sergeant, 
um, that are overseeing, you know, the, anywhere from maybe 15 to 40 soldiers that are, that are in a platoon. Um, even at that level, again, it's, it's the same thing. Some leader is there putting out an end state. This is what I want you to achieve and taking a step back. We've already done the training. I already trust you to know what you need to do in this situation. Make it happen. Um, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant, but I, I always well, love awesome. the, the connection I, between them. I, I love that. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I never really understood how things were accomplished and whether or not there was much autonomy once the orders were given. And I just learned something there. And I think that's fantastic to know that, you know, in my mind, I've always kind of viewed it as you're going to do what I say you're going to do and you better do it now. Um, so I just learned something new that I didn't well, that, know. Well, that's boot camp. And yeah, there's definitely a time and place for that too. Uh, oh, that's funny. So, And I've even heard stories of in the military where it's like, hey, somebody's like, maybe they're not in it or they're not super engaged. And the way that they say, hey, let's just let them plan the mission. Let them plan the training mission. And then we'll let them like figure out like, hey, it's harder than you think. And once they actually do it, they learn, they kind of get maybe picked, not picked on, but like, beat up a little bit for like missing certain major points, then they're like realize why it's important and they take a new level of ownership. So I, I hear that story over and over again from different military people. My brother was in the military, just got out recently. Um, and, and that's, that's a very common theme. So I think that I think is about is like, you know, when we are talking about, Hey, we want to be learning organizations and we want to make, you know, with some people say, you know, fail safe or whatever, but like there's times when it's, it's okay to say, we're going to take small risks here. We're okay if we don't succeed here because there's some bigger stuff coming before we're going to have a critical mission coming up where it is life or death and this training mission isn't there. But I got to get everybody on the same page and understand like how we move together in one direction. And I think that's a very common theme that I that I actually see correlations from the business world to the military world happening, um, you know, in real time. And I know there's some cases, Andrew, I remember this one story where uh, where you kind of did something similar too with some teams where you're just like, yep, I'm going to give them this extra responsibility. I'm not sure if they're ready for it. We'll see. And then like, but the next thing coming is really important. So they have to learn in this situation. Yeah. I, I love when teams fail and I love when they talk about their failures. Right. And I think we all do. I mean, and that's the best way to learn is try, learn, get better, try, learn, get better. And I do think you want to set stretch goals for folks knowing that it's unlikely that they'll get there. And what do they learn in trying to achieve that goal, right, is probably the most important outcome of it. You know, you heard me and you hear me sometimes people think it's very cavalier to just say, you know, start pursuing agility relentlessly. And uh, every time you fail, I want you to celebrate it. So if you're not trying and you can't talk about it, you're not going to get any better. And I, I mean, that applies to anything like sport. Mm-hmm. Like if you genuinely want to be a better hockey player, but you refuse to try to like do backwards crossovers, um, you're not going to get better and you better fall down and you better be able to ask somebody how to get better about it if you're genuinely interested in it. And you just try and you dust yourself off and you try again. Um, In a corporate world, when your paycheck depends on it, it's a lot scarier to do, right? So like if you've been doing the same thing in IT for 10 years and you keep getting paid to do the same thing in IT for 10 years, and then someone comes in and says, there's a better way to do it. I want you to try. It's okay to fail. In fact, when you screw up, I want to know about it. I want you to celebrate it glamorously. That's a very precarious place to put somebody, right? And um, as a CIO, 
in the autonomy that you have there, it's all kind of a warm blanket. But when you have people sort of counting on you and they don't feel the same way, it really puts people in a, in a tough spot. Um, I've seen that before, right? But I do think we'll see less and less of it as what you've seen is when the people relying on those people also feel that way, mm-hmm. right? And that's when things get better. And that's when you see teams start to perform at a much, much higher level. But I, I had not ever thought of that. You know, I had heard a few, Jeff, uh, and I had heard a few th- uh, references to that um, in researching things earlier in my career around agility, but I'd never heard it put that concisely. So I'm definitely going to remember that. But yeah, Jeff, um, failure, you know, you don't get better if you don't push yourselves to do things. And I'm the same way, right? Like coming into this job and all of a sudden working on something very technical that I hadn't worked on in a while, I could easily just say that's somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. But I want to get better at it, right? So I'm kind of admitting, uh, you know, that I don't know much and asking for help and learning and then applying and trying again. And I think that's the most you can ask of anybody, right? And uh, they'll get better if they if they mean it, they'll get better. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot, some people might listen to this and be like, what do you mean you want people to fail? And yeah. I think when I, I was thinking about this a little earlier, actually, I was listening to a podcast with Amy Edmondson uh, earlier today. And uh, she's the person who came up with like psychological safety at Harvard, and she's got the book Teaming and some other stuff. And she put it pretty succinctly. She's like, I didn't think that when I started the research that that like psychological safety would come from the teams that made the most mistakes, but that's what the research said. And I, th- I think really where she was getting at is um, as she was talking more and more about this is that everyone's failing. It's just some teams are transparent about their failures. And because they're transparent, it gives them the opportunity to inspect. And with the opportunity to inspect, they can also adapt, which kind of goes back to our, you know, three pillars of empiricism, you know, inspection, adaptation, transparency. Right. You need those three things. And the team, some teams that are just doing that naturally, they're allowed to get a lot better. Just like you're, you're saying there with like skating. It's like, if you don't, if you don't understand, like, I'm going to try this thing and, and, and inspect how you did it and try to figure out how to do it better. You're never going to get better at it. You're never going to have that, you know, in your tool belt to pull out when you need it. And, um, and so you're just, you're never, you're never going to get to that next level, right? There's always going to be that thing blocking you. So, yeah, um, I think one thing that we, we need to do a better job as, as, as agilists and informing people about it is, yeah, you want them to fail, but you want to equip them for that failure so they can do it safely. Right. And like, I would never put a team in an environment where I had a pretty good sense that they were going to fail if I didn't think they were equipped for it or it wasn't the right situation. Right. So if you want to apply that to sports or hockey, like I would never, as a coach, I would never ask a kid to try something if they didn't have the right equipment on. And I never asked them to try something in a situation where it could hurt them. Right. And applying that to the world that we live in, like you want them to learn, but you want them to be equipped to fail. Right. So you want them, if they have to fall back on the old ways of doing things to be successful, that's fine. Right. Or if they do fail, you don't want to do it in an environment where it could, you know, hurt them or hurt the company or hurt the teams that they work with. So I think equipping, you know, equipping people to be prepared for failure is important, not just, you know, philosophically, but putting them in the right situations where it's okay to fail, right? You don't want to put it in a situation where if they do fail, it's going to come with repercussions. 
Right. So, and that's sort of something you have to gauge as a leader and, and make sure that you're setting them up in the right spot. Right. So, and that's, that's not easy to do. And you kind of have to pick your situations. Right. But the more broadly that you start to apply these and the more people that are leading other people, then they start to get it too. And it kind of takes on a life of its own. That's some great advice on like failure. I, I really like that. Um, how about some other lessons learned that you, that you would, you know, you've had a long career, you've started, you know, you were doing extreme programming at one point and got to C-level and then you're working for Microsoft advising people like there's, you've recurse had a, you know, broad spectrum of different things that you're doing. Um, what were some other lessons learned that, that you say are like just crucial for any, anybody kind of going through the same type of progression? You know, I think for me and I think where I see other people grow is to, to stretch yourself to, you know, there's not just a path, right? Like when I became a CIO or a CTO, I never aspired to that. Like when you're 11 years old, you don't say like, I'm going to be a CIO someday, right? It's just not in people's genes to do that. You kind of have a, you, you'll find opportunities in your career. And when that opportunity is presented, the only thing you can do is do the very best you can with the circus circumstance that you're in, learn from it and move on, right? And if you kind of look at every situation that way, paths will start to present themselves, but don't be afraid to take a path you didn't expect, mm-hmm. right? And always apply the same philosophy though. Like I'm, this is a situation I'm in. This is the best way to be successful. No matter what the outcome is, I'm going to learn from it because I've had things end the way I didn't expect them to um, a few times in my career at sort of big publicly, big public venues. Right. But it wasn't because I wasn't trying to do the very best thing given the very best circumstance Sometimes the outcome isn't always the way you expect. Learn from it and then decide where your path is going forward, right? Um, and I think if you can kind of go into that in any career, which is I'm going to do the best I can in this situation and I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to move on to the next situation. Um, that's really the best you can do because a lot of times decisions and things that happen are outside of your control. The way that you react to them, the way that you respond to them, um, and then how you move on from them is what will define you as an individual. And that's what you have control in, right? Is how you react to the situations that yeah. you're with. Yeah. So like given the circumstance that you're in, how do you be as successful as you can be? And then if it doesn't go the way that you want, how are you going to respond to that? And what are you going to do differently the next time in a different situation down a different path? And I think if you can just be honest about that every time and set aside your own ego, um, you'll find that your career can be very rewarding. And it doesn't have to be financially rewarding. Sometimes the two go hand in hand, but really sort of the impression that you leave with the people that you worked with. So mm-hmm. the only thing I'll ever say about like where I've been is with very few exceptions, um, I've always been proud of the teams that I've created and the difference that I've made um, and the relationships that I've formed. So I've never really let those, um, those have always been sort of coveted to me. 
And like I said, that things haven't always gone the way I expected. Uh, it hasn't always been because of effort, but I've always learned from them. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much can say with consistency, I've always tried to do the right thing. So that will make for a pretty good career. Sometimes you'll make money doing it that way. Sometimes you won't. But I think you'll at least have some pride. And probably happiness and fulfillment from that, right? Like if you're always doing your yeah. best, you're leaving people with that impression, right? Like, and you're approaching things, I don't know, with an attitude of, it seems like humility, empathy, building relationships. Um, yeah, that, that seems like a good place to start. So can, can it be better? And, and people get sick of hearing me say that, but I think it's all about that. Like, can we try, learn, get better, move on to the next thing? and do it in a way where you respect the individual and be empathetic to the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a great conversation, Andrew. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I guess at this point we usually get our guests an opportunity to plug anything, you know, I don't know if they got anything going on recently or like you want the listeners to know about. No, it's just good to see you guys in a long time. I wish you well. Uh, keep at it. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.